Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 107. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. As you may or may not know, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I have been passionate about the issue of gender-based violence as evidenced by my constantly talking about the issues of sexual and domestic violence and child abuse, which goes right along hand in hand with these other two major issues. Ever since you started listening to my podcast, ever since I started podcasting, I've been talking about this. So this week, I had an interview with Tamara Hill. And Tamara who practices in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is someone who works with a lot of clients who have trauma. And she was talking with me about the issue of traumatic bonding. I don't know if you've ever heard of that concept, but Tamara describes what traumatic bonding looks like in relationships and how she sees it showing up in the clients that she works with. I ended up sharing a personal experience that I haven't really talked about much, certainly not here on the podcast, and I don't really talk about it that often anyway. So you can hear about how this issue impacts me directly and Tamara's words about traumatic bonding. We just had a really interesting discussion, and I hope it'll be thought-provoking for you, and I hope it will help you understand what it's like for someone who is in an abusive relationship. When we look from the outside, we think it's very easy. Why don't they just leave? You know, no one should put up with that. Sure, that seems so simple, but it's not that simple. And I think our conversation highlights that. So I hope you will find it thought provoking. And at the end of this episode, you'll hear some information about ways that you can make a difference in addressing the problem of domestic violence. So let's go ahead and get started on my interview with 
Tamara Hill. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm very excited to talk with a guest who is coming all the way from Pennsylvania, Tamara Hill. (laughs) (laughs) That is far. (laughs) Just the next state over from me. But Tamara, thanks so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's just start off with you talking a little bit more about yourself and your practice. Tell our listeners about you. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm currently in Pennsylvania and I'm working with children and adolescents as well as families and parents. And right now I'm in two group private practices, which are awesome. Um, One is very trauma-focused for parents, and the other practice is very trauma-focused for kids and teens. So right now, I'm just dealing with a lot of kids, primarily teenagers, who are dealing with traumatic situations, especially the the topic of traumatic bonding. Oh, okay. I think it's wonderful that you have two different practices that you're working with that are both trauma-focused. I wish that was like more common around here. What part of Pennsylvania are you in? Yeah, sure. So I'm in the Pittsburgh area. So part of it is the downtown area. And then the other part is Mount Lebanon. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. You know, it's needed everywhere, but that's wonderful. So, so let's talk about that subject, trauma bonding. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when people hear traumatic bonding, Laura, they think, you know, like, well, what is that? Like, is that some kind of like strange term or like, what does it mean? And so I just want to give you guys a little bit of an overview of what that means. Basically, traumatic bonding, it was developed by Patrick Carnes, if I'm saying his last name correctly. And he kind of had this idea that when we are connected to someone biologically and emotionally, who is abusing us in some fashion, we become bonded to them. And that process of bonding is traumatic in and of itself. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah. So let's, um, why don't you give a couple examples of some types of relationships that could, could represent what traumatic bonding is? Yeah, sure. So I, I think that, I think the main thing that I'm noticing right now in my practice is domestic violence situations. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, situations where we have um, parents who are very verbally and physically abusive toward each other, and the kid or the teen is sitting in the background and they're watching this traumatic car crash, because it really is. It's like two different people are just, they're not getting along. What happens in the process of domestic violence is you have somebody who's the dominant partner. They're being very emotionally or psychologically and physically abusive, but there are times when they are very loving and very charming, and that kind of cements that bond between the two even more, and it kind of it kind of gets that other spouse stuck in limbo between, you know, you're this person who's abusing me and traumatizing me, and yet I love this other side of you that's so charming. So that's, that's how that process gets started, and I see it most in domestic violence cases. Okay. So I'm really glad you brought that up. I want to talk about a couple little points about that. Because for one thing, I think that people who are in abusive relationships don't necessarily recognize their relationships as being domestic violence or intimate partner violence. You know, it's like we have this picture of what that is. And then the way it shows up in people's lives, they don't think it's the same. I very much agree. Yeah. So in fact, I was watching, um, have you seen that show 
on HBO, Big Little Lies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I have. I was watching that and I last night, I mean, I've seen the whole series and I actually think that it's a kind of an accurate portrayal of the way abusive relationships can be in the Nicole Kidman, you know, marriage that the husband can be very loving, very sweet. Yeah. And he can also be violent, possessive, territorial, controlling. Yes. And I think when we understand about the dynamics of domestic violence and abusive relationships as outsiders, as professionals, it's easy for us to say, Oh, clearly that's an abusive relationship. But with the, and you know, if you know about the dynamics, like I do, and it sounds like you do the, um, it's like, you know, what's going to happen, you know, the progression, it starts off with, you know, a very exciting courtship. That's usually very short and quick to become a deeply committed relationship. Yes. And then, you know, and with the, the male partner often being described as being a perfect gentleman and, you know, the, the, yeah. Dream come true kind of, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fantasy partner. Yeah, it's that relation. And I'm glad you brought that up, Laura, because that's that that relationship. I just want to throw this in there with you. It's that relationship that makes you feel like you're, you're being swept off your feet, right? Mm-hmm. You Put know, on a pedestal. Yeah, it's that every girl's dream kind of a relationship. Right. And it's kind of like that fairy tale idea. So the person puts you on a pedestal and you're like, wow. Nobody has ever liked me this much, you know, and it's like, wow, he is really, you know, and I'm just stereotyping with a male female relationship, but that's not necessarily the only dynamic where this can happen, of course. But, but for people who know the dynamics, you know, that the first time there's violence, you know, the the victimized partner is going to be completely caught by surprise and think that this is totally out of character. So, you know, right now, I'm kind of glad you brought that up, Laura, because right now, you know, I'm just I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about a, a, a perfect example, um, which would be of, you know, somebody who starts in a relationship that's just beautiful starting out. Right. And it might be great for the first three years and then it changes. Um, and I see that a lot in marriages. I see the dating relationship go well, but right after the marriage, right after the wedding, actually, I'm seeing a lot of, of you know, traumatic bonding happening. You have the abuse, you have the, you know, I've, I've secured this relationship. I finally got you and the person changes. Of course, you know, you and I know, Laura, that this is not every relationship, but I'm sure you and I both have heard of, of relationships where things start out well the marriage happens, the kids happen, and then something goes wrong with the marriage. Absolutely. And we know that there are certain factors that um, increase risk of domestic violence beginning to occur. Like if there is a, you know, a change in the partner's situation, like for example, they have a situation that brings more stress to their life, like losing a job or the, the female partner becomes pregnant or, you know, even there can be that somewhat implicit sense that they're not as close as they were. Yes. You know, and that could be enough to trigger the dominant partner to become concerned about losing the relationship. And that's when they start to act out and, and demonstrate violence or extremely controlling behavior. Mm, Absolutely. 
So I think it's really important, you know, just to describe this so that people who are listening can understand that professionals know the way it goes and, and realize that when the victimized partner thinks this was just a one-time thing, he'll never hurt me again. We know that that's usually not the case. And so it's like, we can see what's going to happen, but for the person who's in the relationship, the way they see it is 99% of the time, this person is like the perfect partner and just 1% of the time they, they act out of character. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that happens in a lot of situations because of course you're taken off guard. You don't know what's going on. But I think, and you brought something up for me, Laura, I was just thinking earlier that there's the, the power differential in the relationship. I think in a, in a relationship that includes the traumatic bonding, you've got a power differential. So you've got nine times out of 10, you've got the, the female who's financially dependent upon the male or emotionally dependent upon the male. And somehow, even though the relationship may have started out well, somehow later in the relationship, the man takes full control. Because that woman's dependence upon him empowers him in some way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's it's really interesting that you said that because I've definitely seen many relationships where from the outside, the woman is a very empowered, very possibly very successful in her career and, you know, confident, assertive, intelligent, independent type of person. But within the relationship d- dynamic, they're more emotionally dependent on the other partner. And so people don't see that from the outside. So they, they would never guess that that woman could be a victim of domestic violence. And then the woman has such a strong identity and being strong and independent and empowered that it prevents them from wanting to let anyone know that there's a big problem they're dealing with. And they feel very ashamed at not being able to do whatever. And that's the other thing is that there's that dynamic of Oh, like, I don't know what brought this on. You know, I can actually. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) As we talk about this, I'm thinking about when I was younger, a relationship I had where we, you know, it kind of started out just like I described with this perfect gentleman put me on a pedestal and it was like unbelievable. But then one day, literally out of the blue, he just started screaming at me, cursing at me and calling names like just for no reason. Yeah. And if I hadn't known, I wasn't a mental health professional then, but if I hadn't known about the dynamics of domestic violence because of just things I had seen and some other family relationships, I, I wouldn't have realized, I definitely would have thought, what did I do? What, what happened? Like, how did I make him, Yes, you know, so upset? Absolutely. You internalize that, right? You start to internalize that as I've done something wrong. Maybe I'm not pretty enough, smart enough, strong enough, you know? And I think I'm glad you brought that up, Laura, because this is the process. This is typically what happens to a a female in an abusive relationship. And in order to cope, it sounds like you were strong enough to get out of that. But in order to cope for most women, they begin to over-identify with a person. And of course, I can go down a whole list of things that, that they begin to do, Laura, but, but one is over-identify with them. So just explain a little bit more about what that means, over-identify with them. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what the woman does is, you know, because she's in a state of confusion, she doesn't know what to think. She thinks it's her fault, but she's not, you know, 100% sure. She starts to kind of make excuses for the behavior and over-identify. So what I mean by that is, you know, looking back at some things that may have triggered her, made her snap, made her angry, made her emotionally distraught. And she begins to almost, I can't think of the word I'm trying to reach for. It almost becomes a fusion of of identities with with she and her spouse. Do you know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Like she, you know, she tries to find some way to reconnect them. And so that's, you know, her her process of trying to over-identify, you know, kind of making excuses, but normalizing it at the same time. Yeah. And kind of thinking it must be something she did or somehow she must have caused this, which makes her try to make it better. And, you know, and he's happy to say, yeah, you made me behave this way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, when you said I was strong enough to get out of that relationship, I definitely was just, I think, even though I was so much caught by surprise, yeah, I still saw, I was like, oh no, this is like not okay. I'm getting like, I got to get out of this. I know where this is going. Like, but it was just because I had had the experience of hearing about that before and that that's not okay. And I think, you know, let's say if in my own family, when I was growing up, if my parents had treated each other that way, I probably wouldn't have blinked an eye. Sure. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead. (laughs) No, no, I'm, I'm glad you said that. No, I was just thinking, I think that's, I think that's how the abuse kind of gets started and it continues. You know what I mean? Like there's just this process of denial in a sense. Yeah. And you don't see, and, and really, I think what we ignore in um, understanding why people don't leave abusive relationships sooner, because, you know, that's the classic question. Why didn't she just leave? Mm-hmm. We ignore the fact that it's traumatic to be when you feel like you really love someone and they love you and all of a sudden they change and act like a completely different person and they're being verbally or physically abusive to you. That's traumatic. Right. Yes, it is. And I, and I think there's also a, a emotional and psychological process that the person has to go through. And it's going to be hard to break that relationship until they, they begin to process everything. It's almost like the beginning stages of the abuse, they're too shocked and too numb at times to make decisions. So I, I hate to say this, but in most relationships, everything needs to play out until that person gets tired and says, I've got to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and when you mentioned strength, it makes me want to point out that it takes an immense amount of strength to stay in an abusive relationship. It's actually much more difficult than, you know, because when you escape from that relationship, it's over. But when you, of course, you know, there can be, it can be hard to get out of it even when you're trying to end it. But if you yeah. Don't leave the relationship if you have, if you're financially dependent or you have kids or you're pregnant and you just, you have nowhere else to live. And it's just not that simple. It takes incredible strength to be able to keep going with the abuse that people experience. I agree, Lauren, especially when you have kids too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the victimized partner thinks that they need to stay in their relationship to protect the kids in some way that the kids will be harmed either emotionally or physically if they leave the relationship. 
Absolutely. And I, you know, I remember counseling a 15 year old years ago when I first, well, I've been in the field for 10 years. Okay. And, and, and I remember about five years ago counseling a, a, a young lady. Un- unfortunately, in, you know, that particular situation, there was a cycle of abuse occurring. And I think that's what happens in a lot of relationships. You've got, you know, these four stages. And the first one is kind of like the tension building stage. So the person is, you know, they're kind, they're friendly, they're giving, they're loving. But something under the surface, you kind of feel like that kindness is going to end somewhere. It's like if I hit the wrong button, something's going to explode. And then, you know, you've got the incidental acting out phase. That's that's stage number two. And that's when the person starts to kind of snap, you know, and they're irritable. And then they say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And of course, you know, you love them. You're going to say, that's okay. We all make mistakes. But then, you know, then you go into that honeymoon period where everything is beautiful again. You know, it's like the calm before the storm. And it's just like this perpetual cycle, Laura. And I think a lot of women get get lost in that. Yeah. And I think um, another important point about that honeymoon stage is that it's not just he's being so kind and so loving, but it can also be he's behaving somewhat like a hurt little boy and you feel you know, you want to help him. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think too, that, that it might be important for us to kind of talk about the characteristics of people that, that, you know, become abusive. And I like the fact okay. that you turn, I, I like the fact that you termed it, Lara, you know, it's like a little hurt boy because that's, that's kind of how it is. It's like, you know, he causes the trouble. And of course I'm being stereotypical by saying he, um, but, you know, my, my clients typically be female or typically female and male. And, you know, what will happen with the guy is, you know, he will cause the, the drama. And then once it's over, he'll act very much like the victim. And for a lot of my clients, those are narcissistic traits. And, mm-hmm. and sadly, you know, you've got sociopathic traits as well, where the person has no empathy, but they are very manipulative and methodical in how they behave within that relationship. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about sociopathic tendencies, that's very scary. But I think that it all goes back to, you know, people become sociopaths because of childhood trauma and horrible abuse that they may have experienced. And um, right. so even even though that person may truly have been a victim in the past, if they're harming you now, like you're not the one who's going to be able to fix them. That's right. It's so true. And to you know, for you, for it to harm you, if it's harming you, then they need to get help on their own. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think too, part of that help is, you know, getting counseling, psychoeducation. I think that's where I'm trying to go with this. It's more of, you know, here's my emotional support, but then you also need the psychoeducation too. Because if you're not aware of how that person's going to behave, from moment to moment or, or from month to month sometimes, then you're going to be caught off guard every time. Those charming, loving characteristics that the person may have had at the beginning of the relationship can be very sociopathic in the end. And it's just this perpetual cycle of confusion. Yeah, it's just a person who's willing to do anything to get some kind of need met. But that's right. Whatever need is trying to be met, it's you aren't going to ever be able to meet it because it's not really about you or who you are. It's about something in them. Oh, I so agree. Very much agree. Yeah. So so you talked about the 
beginning of the relationship and that really like exciting, like heady, Mm -hmm. appealing, charming behavior. And with the concept of traumatic bonding, I've heard of it. And I think Patrick Carnes talks about it as a kind of an addictive process. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's almost like a drug addiction in a sense. Yeah. So can you explain a little bit more about that, about what's what's happening with that? Yeah, absolutely. So bonding, you know, if we take the trauma piece out of it, bonding is a biological and emotional process. There's also a psychological piece to it as well. So all of it works together in a relationship between two people, you know, they're engaging in things that bond them. So they're, you know, going to gatherings together, they're talking, they're texting, they're, you know, having all of these very intimate communications between each other. That bonding process, Lara, is cemented. Once that person begins to become abusive, that bonding becomes traumatic. And there's this back and forth you know, here's a little bit of my good side and here's a little bit of the the bad side. And that back and forth, good and bad causes that addiction. If, if you know what I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a substance abuse where, you know, you're, you're, you're using pills to self-medicate. You hate the, the um, side effects of what you do. And yet you love being in that state of high. That's basically what happens in a, in a traumatic relationship. Beautiful things happen, but so do the ugly things. And those two things, you know, they interact or they happen very closely together. And that's when the addiction comes in. You want the good, but you also can't stand the bad at the same time. I hope I hope I'm making that clear, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'm thinking of is how they say that someone who does crack meth or heroin, they often say that the person is they get this intense high and then they're always seeking that same high again, but it's never quite there. Absolutely. It's like a roller coaster. Yeah. So they keep seeking more to, in hopes that they'll ever feel that, but you know, it's our endorphins, right? And it's our hormones. Very much agree. And I think it's, it's also brain chemicals too. I hate to say this, but we don't have enough research on traumatic bonding to really explain what happens, you know, neurobiologically. But I think there's some, some neurological and biological components to it. Um, And that's why Patrick says it's like an addiction. It really does hit our pleasure and emotional centers in our brain. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I'm thinking about attachment too. Yeah. Because, you know, that warm flood of good feelings that you get, like, you know, with the mother and baby, with the skin-to-skin contact, and then the infatuation that you feel in new relationships when, you know, that process begins to happen. It is very, it is, it is like an addictive feeling. Yes, it is. I think, I think as humans, we automatically want that high Because life is so monotonous, right? (laughs) You know, it's like you do the same things every day. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and when you get that that little taste of excitement, you know, that increased heart rate, the the biological symptoms, the increased heart rate, the the fantasy thoughts, the the hope, the dreams, you know, all of that stuff, Um, your blood pressure rising when you see that person and you're happy to see them, all that stuff is biological. And that's what happens in a relationship 
that is traumatic also. You've got those really good high feelings that are biological, but then you also have that, you know, that hit the ground feeling too. Like you've hit the concrete. It's not as wonderful as you thought. So it's, it's, it's very much an emotional and, and biological roller coaster. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to someone who is in a relationship that starts out really great, even if it's not even physically abusive? I mean, I'm thinking of some examples of relationships where the, there was like this very intense interest from one partner at first. And then when things seem to be solidly in relationship, you know, like committed to one another and really feeling like it's sort of smoothed out to a steady pace, suddenly the person withdraws. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, it's like narcissistic behavior where the person is really pursuing kind of wooing the person, but then once they have them, they're not interested. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I have lots of clients that ask me about that. And I, I always make it very clear that, that we have to keep in mind that not everybody is working from a healthy conscience. Not everybody is working from a healthy set of personality traits or even mental health. And so I think it's good to keep in mind too, that you know, if you have a person who pursues you really hardly and then once you reciprocate, they pull back, you might want to consider, you know, does this person have a personality disorder? Does this person have, you know, uh, maybe a mental health condition that kind of causes them to engage in relationships in this fashion? But, you know, if we're if we're also talking about somebody who doesn't have any of those issues, a personality disorder or a mental health problem, I think it's safe to say that there's a very... Ooh, a very spiritual and emotional component to a person who pulls away when you pursue them in return. Yeah. And I mean, I think, again, our attachment plays a role that for some people, once they have the more intimate connection, even if it's not physically intimate yet, it can be it can feel too intense and overwhelming for them and they withdraw without even knowing it. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. You know, but I think it's kind of funny what you said about the um, personality disorder or mental health issue, because I think in my experience, my clients who are in therapy think there is something wrong with them because they need therapy, which to me, it's the opposite. Like if you get therapy, it means that you are a healthy and self-aware person who realizes when whatever you're dealing with is more than you can handle by yourself. So true. You know, (laughs) but then they would say, oh, there's no personality disorder. There's no mental health issues. He has nothing wrong with him. And it's like, well, you can't really. How do we know that? I mean, exactly. I'm the one who's in therapy, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I have clients say that to me all the time, Laura. And I say, well, let's reevaluate, you know, and and I hate to say it. I'm such a, a, a champion for my clients. Like I'm always there, like rooting for them. And the first thing I tell them is, please don't think because you're here to figure out your spouse that you are unstable. As a matter of fact, we're going to we're going to try to do a quote unquote research study and figure out what's wrong with your spouse, because something's probably wrong with them, not you. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to say it. And, you know, Laura, can I just throw in there, too, that I think we um, as individuals, we we attract and I, I oof, this is a, this is a touchy topic, but I think we attract a certain personality 
to ourselves. And we get a lot of women who feel like, why do I keep getting in relationships that are so very similar? Mm-hmm. And and why do I keep being bonded to these guys or these people? And, you know, I have to throw in there too. Sometimes it's family that traumatic bonding can can occur in. But you, you have these women who are saying, why do I keep doing this? And, you know, why do I keep ending up in the same situation over and over again where I bond to the person who's traumatizing me? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, that concept used to make me feel kind of uncomfortable, but I see it now as we are drawn to people who feel like other people we have loved who may not have loved us in the healthiest way. And of course, it all starts with family. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I think you mentioned that earlier, Laura, you said the attachment piece that starts back in childhood. So maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe in certain ways that woman's looking for dad or looking for that mother connection. Yeah. I mean, if um, if mom loved you and she was very attentive in some ways, but in some ways she was very emotionally neglectful, like, you know, ignored certain things or wouldn't talk about certain things or, you know, because I think it's so confusing. I, I probably talk about this a lot on this podcast, but it's it's confusing that people feel my mom is my best friend. Oh, I have the best mom in the world, yeah. you know. I mean, I'm a mom. I would love for my kids to think I'm the best mom in the world, but I know I did not get everything right, even though I was really trying to be a really good mom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just nobody's perfect. And I'd rather say, you know, let me know when you figure out the ways that I let you down and then I'll let you know that I'm really sorry that I let you down that way because <laughs> yeah, that's just normal. I mean, yeah, there's no perfect person. And just because someone becomes a parent doesn't mean they suddenly know everything about child development and emotional attunement. We only know what we've lived. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, Laura, I just want to point something out that you said. I thought that was really cool how you just kind of like, you know, you admit it that I know I'm not a perfect mom. (laughs) So that's really great. I love that. Oh, thanks. Um, Yeah, I love it. I love honesty and authenticity. Uh, You know, I think that's one of the things that my clients struggle with in their traumatic relationships, Laura, is that you know, they don't feel that, that they're able to be authentic with their spouse because, again, they're bonded to them and yet they've been traumatized. And so they're in this limbo. You know, can I open up to you? Can I be honest with you? Can I not be honest with you? So there's this I, I don't even know how to explain it other than it's like a tornado of complicated dynamics. That's the best way I can put it. I agree. The dynamic is it because when you said about, you know, is there something wrong with your spouse? I think it's, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your spouse. There's really nothing wrong with either of you. It's just that the way you relate with each other has a certain dynamic that isn't healthy for either of you. Yeah, very much agree. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes it is in that abusive relationship. It is what that partner is doing. But if you get out of that relationship and move into the next one without any awareness of what it is in you that draws you to people who feel like that person feels for yeah. you. You're likely to, and and we see this all the time, don't we? People, you know, they leave an abusive relationship and the next relationship may be maybe less abusive or abusive in a different way. Right. And, you know, ultimately their healthiest relationship, if they haven't done the self examination work to figure out what's really going on for them. Right. 
the healthiest relationship may be the one where there's no physical violence and the person's just very controlling. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I've seen many clients who go through that. They start out with very risky relationships. They leave that one or it ends and they go to the next one. And then, you know, I've also seen situations where the person will divorce and they'll say, you know what, I'm not getting married again because it didn't work out. So I think I'm just going to date. But they end up dating people who are very similar. Mm -hmm. But like you, but like you said, in very different ways. Again, I still think we we draw a certain person to us depending on what we need emotionally and psychologically. Right. And what feels familiar, it may not be comfortable, but it's still familiar. So that person who is unhealthy for us in our relationship, well, let me back up. The person who could be very healthy doesn't seem appealing. Maybe they're not, they're boring. They're too nice. Yeah. There's no spark, quote unquote, you know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes the spark is the feeling of that danger, that sense of, uh uh-oh. Yeah, (laughs) so true. So true. And I think, too, that also depends on who we were around as we're growing up as well. Because I've I've noticed even in myself, I seem to have experiences where I I gravitate towards people who remind me of somebody else, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. If unconsciously. Somebody, unconsciously. If somebody reminds me of my awesome mom, I automatically think that person is nurturing and caring. You know, the, the males who have been in my life family, you know, if I feel familiar, you know, that familiar connection with somebody else, I'm automatically, you know, automatically drawn to them, connected to them. And it's only a matter of time. And this has happened to me in my past. It's only a matter of time before I begin to see, wait a minute, you're nothing like the person I thought you were. I was pretty much duped by my own psychological needs. Right. Projective identification. You, You picked that person and attributed certain characteristics to them that they hadn't even shown you based on something that felt familiar. Oh, yeah. I think that's traumatizing in and of itself. I agree. And it's also really confusing. It's so hard to like piece, like pick apart, like, what is it? What happened? Yeah. Who is this? And I thought I knew you. And interestingly, you know, you also begin to visually see that person differently. (laughs) You know, you may start to see who they really look like visually, because I think when we're emotionally and psychologically connecting to a person based on familiarity, we think that person may look like that other person too. Mm-hmm. And once we wake up, we realize that, whoa, wait a minute, you're kind of looking different to me these days visually. Yeah. So. Like not, <laughs> not attractive anymore. Something where it's like, oh, you're ugly on the inside and it looks ugly <laughs> on the outside now. Exactly. Yeah. You can feel trapped. Yeah. So I think, One of the things that just came up for me in talking about this is that it's very, you know, we go through life kind of just like almost sleepwalking sometimes that we're just, we're doing what we think we know to do. We don't have a really open perspective about what's happening. It's all based on our own experiences and our own beliefs and values. And we just think we know what's what. So true. And, you know, even I think we also base our our reality on what other people experience. Right, Lara? So we think, 
you know, if the other person was in this relationship, then maybe I should be too. Or maybe, you know, if that person was, was dating that kind of a person, maybe I should too. And when we, when we do that kind of stuff, we get, we get trapped because we're not, we're not focusing on our lane, so to speak. We're focusing on, on somebody else's life. Yeah. And I think like, again, going back to that fairy tale idea, I see so commonly in our culture, especially, I mean, not just among, among the women, but for men too, that it's very common to say, you know, he's the one or, you know, this is my happily ever after or my, he's my Prince Charming. And that's yeah. not real life. No, it's not. Maybe at first, but it dies down once reality hits. So, well, yeah, I mean, there is no like key to having your life not have ups and downs, hard times in your relationship you know, it's just, it's part of it. And we think that it's only, have you ever thought about the fact that when they say, and they lived happily ever after, <laughs> it's as if that's like the yeah. end, but yeah, in the story, what are they like? Cinderella and the prince are like 20. <laughs> <laughs> Not even. Yeah. yeah. Probably back then they were like 14. Exactly. You know, I just came to the realization that Disney films were not healthy for me at <laughs> all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a little too simple. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So what do you recommend for someone who's listening to this and they're hearing traumatic bonding in their own story as, as we talk and they're like, oh my gosh, I think that might apply to my situation. What would you recommend? Yeah, I, you know, this sounds very simple, but I would replay this podcast and I would go back over it and I would sit with a pen and a paper and write down why you feel that you were in this particular relationship. Once that happens, I think I would go find a therapist as soon as possible. And I would tell the therapist up front, I need to process my relationship and I need to figure out where this is going. And I think the next thing to do would be to kind of, Psych, try to psychoanalyze and, and separate yourself from your behavior and watch how you communicate with, with that person. I think relationships are a dance and you're going to make a move and that person is going to make a move unconsciously and consciously. So kind of stepping outside of yourself to observe how is this person responding to me and how do I feel in this interaction? I think those are two or three important things we need to do. Yeah, I agree. And I think too that an awareness of our own possible trauma history and what yeah. trauma could be activated that is showing up in these relationships that's making us see, for example, when you said, um, you're not who I thought you were, you know, what, what's happening with trust there and how does this ping on our experiences yeah. of trauma from our earlier years, which everyone has. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, bringing up with your therapist, you know, if you have one or if you're going to find one, I think bringing up the simple fact that I may have been in a fantasy mode for way too long. I need to process, you know, where's my reality? Because I think some people, you know, and, and I think I've been there too. We, we get so wrapped up in the fairy tale that we forget that we're walking in a fantasy. We think it's reality. So we need somebody to kind of help us separate fantasy from, from reality. And a good therapist can, can help you do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to put some links to domestic violence resources in our 
show notes for this episode since we were talking about that. And I also want to tell people more about where they can find you and kind of, I know you've got a lot of stuff out there online. Um, so where would be the best place for people to find you? Yeah, sure. So I I have become very addicted to Twitter because it puts me in contact with so many awesome people, including you, Laura. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can definitely find me at therapist T and that's T E E. And then you can find me at my website at anchored in knowledge.com anchored in knowledge.com. And is that therapist T is it therapist and then T E E. So it's two T's in a row at the end. Correct. Yes. Okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. I'll put your Twitter link on there and anchored in knowledge.com. Yeah. And Tamara, thanks so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. This was a really interesting discussion. I think it's going to get people thinking. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. You're awesome, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So are you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Tamara Hill. I hope you found some different perspective to consider on the issue of domestic violence or traumatic bonding. It's definitely a thought-provoking subject. There are no easy answers, but there are many ways that you can get involved to make a difference in the issue of domestic violence. And since this is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, October 2017, I wanted to give you some resources for how you can get involved. One organization that does a lot of good to help survivors of domestic violence is the National Network to End Domestic Violence. They have a national domestic violence hotline, 1-800-799-7233, which goes directly to your local domestic violence crisis center where you live. And the website for the National Network to End Domestic Violence, NNEDV, is nnedv.org. You can find out about ways that you can help with financial support, getting facts about domestic violence. And one of the really great things they do is spread a lot of good information about internet and computer safety because abusive people tend to use technology to stalk and track and abuse their victims quite frequently. And the NNEDV does a lot of good in disseminating information about those tactics and how you can stop them. Another great resource is the Women's Law Center of Maryland. And their website is www.wlcmd.org. This is an organization that uses the power of the legal system to protect the legal rights and work for systemic change in women's rights which domestic violence is still seen as a women's issue. But since not only women can be victims of domestic violence, their work helps any victim or survivor of domestic violence. So check out their website, wlcmd.org, for information about how you can make a donation or get involved. Another website that I really appreciate is loveisrespect.org. Loveisrespect.org is a website that is all about 
teen relationships, and it has great information to help teens and young adults understand how to determine whether or not their relationship is healthy. And they offer online chat and texting help, a lot of resources and information about relationships. It's really great for especially teens and young adults. So that's loveisrespect.org, and you can make a donation to them if you would like. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, I would be grateful if you could visit iTunes and leave a rating and review. Let them know what you think about Therapy Chat, what you like, what you don't like. And also, I'd love for you to download from iTunes the free Therapy Chat app where you can get all the latest episodes and easily keep them all in one place and share them. And if you have the app, it would be great if you could go to the iTunes store and leave a rating or review for that because I don't think it has any right now. All right, that's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll be talking with you soon. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.